Welcome to the Movie Planet. This week we talk about 1992's Western, Unforgiven. With Joe. Ned, goddammit, how many more shots do I have? And JC. Hell yeah. I killed the hell out of him, didn't I? Three shots and he was taking a shit. And Joel. It's a hell of a thing killing a man. You take away all he's got. And always ever gonna. I'm your host, Joe, and with me are the William Money and then Ned Logan to my little Bill Daggett, Joel and JC. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Happy to be here. <laughs> Welcome back again. Again, again. This again. is again, again, but I still look good in a pine box. You do. Well preserved. I do. I mean, seriously, put a sign on me, stick me out on a, on a, on a street. People throw things at me. They pay attention. <laughs> it would look good. That's a whores game. <laughs> say, say what you want. Did you just call our listeners that would walk by and throw things at me whores? What are they throwing at you? Uh, I don't know. Probably mud. I no, mean, I'd be calling you a whore. Oh, well, yeah. Okay. Say what you want to about the whores in this movie, but they are decent when they go in public. I've never seen a, a whore, whore that looks that good. I've never seen. <laughs> no, no, no. I've never seen a prostitute that covers up more going button to the top shelf button, button wearing long sleeves <laughs> and still making money <laughs> than I did in the Westerns. The West knew how to keep your decency. And make money. There you go. Yeah, well, she did make 200 bones, and who knows what she was giving out to the, for the free guys. Whatever. And she made $200. Yeah. So she was getting bones. There Look at that. Look at that. There he is. Uh, this week, we'll be Penis. talking about the 1992 Western Unforgiven. <laughs> JC has nominated this film for the Western Pantheon, and we'll see if we can all agree whether that's a worthy distinction. Uh, we did all sit down and watch it last night. Uh, yeah, for first. This is our first DVD watch together. The only other thing we've ever watched together was Rogue One. We uh we yeah. popped our cherry. Uh, it it well popped. Yeah. Sorry, I got stuff on your carpet. I'll clean it up. That's it's a phrase he gets thrown around every now and then. Popping of the cherry. Yeah. We could pop the champagne. Would you rather I say like pop the blueberry? We are gonna take a little break here, and we're gonna return at recess for JC to talk us through one of his favorite westerns. It is Unforgiven, and we will uh, have a frank discussion about this movie and uh, our, its impact on all of us, and whether it's pantheon worthy. Who's Frank? Frank. Frank. Bye, Steve. Bye, Bye. Steve. No. <laughs> Bye, Frank. Stay with us, Steve. <laughs> you have insulted the honor of this beautiful woman, Kirkland, said the duck. You must apologize. But Two-Gun Kirkland would have none of it. In cursing, he reached for his pistols and would have killed him. But the duck was faster. And Hotel had blazed from his smoking six guns. See, I consider that to be an accurate depiction of the events. I'll be it all right. There is a certain poetry to the language which I couldn't resist. Uh, Mr. Beauchamp, I was in the Blue Bottle Saloon in Wichita the night that English Bob killed Corky Corcoran. I didn't see you there. No, no woman, no two gun shooters, none of this. You were there? Yeah, I was there. First off, Corky never carried two guns. Oh, he should have. No, he, he was he was called two gun Parker. Yeah, well, a lot of folks did call him two gun, but that wasn't because he was sporting two pistols. That was because he had a dick that was so big it was longer than the barrel of that Walker Colt that he carried.
insulting he ever did was stick that thing of his into this French lady that English Bob here was kind of sweet on. You see, the night that Corky walked into the Blue Bottom, before he knows what's happening, Bob here takes a shot at him, and he misses because he's damn drunk. Now, that bullet wasn't by panicked old Corky, and he did the wrong thing. He went for his gun in such a hurry, he shot his own damn toe off. Meantime, Bob here, he's aiming real good, and he squeezes off another. But he misses, because he's still so damn drunk, and he hits this $1,000 mirror up over the bar. But now, the duck of death is as good as dead, because Corky does it right. He aims real careful. No hurry. And bam! That Walker Colt blew up in his hand, which was a failing common to that model. You see, though, Corky had to have two guns instead of just a big dick. He would have been there right to the end to defend himself. Wait a minute, you mean You mean that English, English Bob killed him when he didn't even have... Well, old Bob wasn't going to wait for Corky to grow a new hand. No, he just walked over there real slow. Because he was drunk. Shot him right through the liver. <laughs> this week, we are discussing the 1992 Western Unforgiven, directed by Clint Eastwood. Starring Clint Eastwood as Bill Money, Gene Hackman as Little Bill Daggett, Morgan Freeman as Ned Logan, and Richard Harris as English Bob. A little trivia to start us off about the film. It was made for about $14 million, but brought in $159.2 million worldwide. Yeah. The final screen credit reads, Dedicated to Sergio and Don, referring to Clint Eastwood's mentors, Sergio Leone and Don Siegel. Which I believe were the directors of his older westerns, weren't they? Uh, I know uh, Don Siegel was. I don't know Sergio Leone. Because I know Leone did Westerns. I okay. don't know if he... Ser- then, yeah, he probably... Okay. I'm sure if we looked it up, he was probably like the I think Leone, high and all that. Yeah, I was going to say, I think he did Good, Bad, and the Ugly in the yeah. Although the score was arranged by Lenny Nyhaus... Nyhaus? Nyhaus? Doesn't matter. The main theme was written by Clint Eastwood himself. This is only the third Western <laughs> to ever win the Best Picture Oscar, <laughs> the other two being Dances with Wolves from 1990 and Cimarron from 1931. Now, when I mentioned this to you earlier, we were both surprised because it was yeah. like, how are they the only three movies, Westerns, to win Best Picture? Because we also made the statement, and we have no facts for this. This was just something we said. Like, when you think of numbers of films in a genre, there have to be more Westerns than any other movie genre. Maybe not. Maybe we're wrong. But just spaghetti Westerns and all of that, you would just think, and only three? I know. Damn. Uh, gentlemen, what is your history with this movie? Do you remember the first time you saw this movie, Joel? Uh, I my first time was last night, <laughs> and I only almost nodded off once. Well done, sir. Well <laughs> at done at the Joe Sarah Cineplex. That's yes. true. <laughs> Joe. Okay, yeah, I, it was about a month or two ago. I uh, yeah, it, it, this is a movie I remember hearing about when I was a kid, and I wasn't a Western fan then. And then I got older, and I wasn't a Western fan, and it showed up on Xfinity, and I was like, okay, let me just see what the, all the hubbub was all about. Uh, I buckled down. I gave it a try. I figured there was more to Westerns besides Tombstone and The Man from Snowy River. Sorry, Mr. Hayden. I sat at home on a Saturday night, took in a Western, and I appreciated it. Yeah, cool. JC? Uh, This was another dad movie for me. I know if you've heard our earlier podcast, I was introduced to most Westerns. Most Westerns I've seen are because of my father. My father just seems to genuinely love Westerns. Um, 
It's one of my favorites. I think my favorite Western is probably Rio Bravo um, because dad just, I just have nostalgic feelings of watching it with my dad. This was one that my dad bought. I remember him getting the DVD and he was excited about it. We went home, we watched it right away. And my father talks through all movies. He is that guy that says, you know, that's going to happen. We would and, not get and, along know, then. <laughs> like he t- not a word. I remember distinctly the first time I watched Unforgiven with my father. I don't remember how old I was. I don't. I don't remember. I had to have still been in grad or in grade school, or at least in high school or something, uh, because I wasn't off on my own. Didn't say a damn word through the whole movie. Didn't talk. And at the end, he just looked at me. He said, "So what'd you think?" And I'm like, "I, I liked it." He's like, "It's a good movie." And he got up and like that was it. Like my dad usually talks, and he just didn't. So I probably latched onto it because of that. Um, to be honest, I don't remember my feelings the first time I watched it. I don't remember having thoughts about it. I remember watching it again uh, in college with a bunch of friends because I had a really close friend named uh, Messi who uh, was a probably a bigger movie buff than I was. And we watched this together, and that was when we really started to break it down. And... Uh, Messi would point things out to me. He was like, did you like this? I'm like, oh, yeah, I did notice that and that. And we, we kind of critiqued it. And it was from that moment forward that I was just like, you know what? Unforgiven is one of those great movies. And I just, I really like it. So into the synopsis, uh, William Money, played by Clint Eastwood, is a widower with two young children. He was once a very vicious gunfighter, but after marrying, he gave up gunfighting, gave up drinking, and most other of his vices. On the intro title card, his wife has died of smallpox in 1878. Smallpox? Smallpox. What did I say? Smallpox. Oh, well, that's what happens when you don't take care of your ballparks. Oh, you're a fan of Jurassic Ark, so. It's true. But he continues <laughs> to try to eke out a living with his children on their hog farm and to try to be the kind of man he believes his late wife would want him to be. Now, at the start of the movie, it is 1880. <clears throat> The town of Big Whiskey, Wyoming, is ruled rather arbitrarily by a sheriff named Little Bill Daggett, played by Gene Hackman. Yes. Two cowboys, Davy and Mike, are spending their leave at a brothel owned by Skinny Dubois. Or Skinny Dubois. Dubois. It is Dubois. Uh, one of the women, Delilah, makes an offhanded comment about Mike, uh, about Mike's penis size. Uh, he perceives it as an insult, so he attacks her with a knife, scarring her face in a very vicious uh, sort of intro scene within the first couple minutes of the movie. Skinny and the de facto madam, Strawberry Alice, played by Frances Fishers, hold them until Little Bill can arrive. The women want Davy and Mike to hang, but Sheriff Little Bill decides that since they did not murder Delilah, they should be horsewhipped instead. However, Skinny, the owner of the brothel, is more concerned with potential loss of business due to Delilah's disfigurement and no one wanting to lay with her. So Little Bill decrees that instead of being horsewhipped, the men will have to give Skinny some horses as payment. This outrages the women even more. He's not even going to be whipped, Bill! And they meet privately to pool all their resources to offer a reward to anyone who will kill the two cowboys. Now, can I say something? Sure, go ahead. All right. Uh, Little Bill has done his job. Yeah. He's not doing... In fact, what we've seen so far, the only thing he's done wrong is upset the prostitutes. Yeah. Because they want blood. But... When and you he, think about the what the justice is here, 
it is fair payment for what happened, I guess. And you and you understand the women's rage. You truly do. And you kind of want to side with them. But then Bill, who you kind of want to call an asshole throughout the movie, but he doesn't do a damn thing wrong. Everything no. Bill does is what Bill should do. And he says to Strawberry, haven't you seen enough blood already? Yeah. And it's like you want to agree with the women. You want to kind of take their side. But then Bill calls out the shit and he's like, guys. It's not revenge. It, you don't do this. That's just as wrong. And let's be clear. I'm not advocating against women's violence Oh, no, 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 no. What no, I'm no. saying is that he was about to horsewhip them until the proprietor, and at that time, he's the one in charge, yeah. and he's the one that's pressing charges, is the one who's going to say, yes, this is my property. She is disfigured. And that's it. you see a little bit go, okay, so this is the property issue. And Got you. And he changes the way he's going to do things. Because so, at that time, yeah. that's what it was. I'm not saying in 2017, if you knife up a girl, okay, just give him some horses. We're all good. No, this is no. 1880, and we and we get it that it, it does a good job of explaining society in that time. Yeah, I mean, it, it is cool that he says, oh, so you're going you're gonna to treat her like an object. Yeah. Then, then we're not going to do revenge like it was a personable crime. Yeah. If you're going to treat exact- her like... An object, then you will get an object in return. Exactly. And it instantly becomes a, a matter-of-fact case in a way. Even though socially we don't like it, right. it becomes matter-of-fact. Right. We meet Money on his farm trying to deal with some sick hogs that have the fever. Hogs got the fever, pa! <laughs> it, qui- it quickly becomes clear that he is not very good. He is not a very good hog farmer, he- as he repeatedly falls in the mud when trying to grab a hog. In the midst of this, he has a visitor, a young man calling himself the Schofield Kid after his revolver, uh, played by Himes Wolvet. James Wolvet. James Wolvet. That's no. Okay. Anywho. Who knows? And the Schofield Kid knows money by reputation and would like his help in killing Davy and Mike in return for half of the reward money from the brothels or from the prostitutes. Money makes it clear that he is not interested because since marrying his late wife, he doesn't do the things he used to do anymore. But after the kid leaves, Money goes back to his bumbling attempts at tending the hogs and begins to have second thoughts as he looks around his ruined property. He sets a can on a tree stump and begins firing at it with his pistol. Doesn't hit it. No. Not even close. <laughs> gets so pissed, he goes into the house, gets a shotgun, and blows the can away from point-blank range. This'll work. Because that's how you <laughs> handle rage. <laughs> Back in Big Whiskey, Davy and Mike show up with the horses for Skinny. The women start to throw horse manure and mud at them. Mike has shown has never shown any remorse remorse at any point for this the cutting that he did, but Davy shows genuine uh, remorse and actually tries to offer a horse, the best horse, to Delilah. However, they are chased out of town with the screaming, "She's cut up, and you just want to give her a horse." In this moment, I do. I kind of feel bad for for uh, Mike. He's or sorry, not Mike for Davy. I feel yeah. bad for the younger Davy. He's genuinely cut up. Or ah, that was a bad choice of words. <laughs> no, no, it'll work. Uh, he, he's he's ge- emotionally. He's genuinely slashed. Slashed emotionally, <laughs> and uh, 
just just wants to make it right by literally giving he's giving away the best of what he has. And they're mad because it's a pony. And they're no. mad because it's a pony because it's still this whole property argument, which is what it was made by by Skinny. And uh, he is unforgiven. Oh, they won't forgive him. He is unforgiven, which is the reason for the title. They just keep no. We're not going to forgive you. We are going to hold on to our our revenge, and it moves on. Uh, realizing that he will need help tracking the wayward cowboys down, Money decides to contact his former partner, Ned Logan, played by Morgan Freeman. Thank you very much. He says goodbye to his kids, telling them, if you need anything, seek. If you need anything, <laughs> see Ned's common law wife, Sally Two Trees, and take care of yourselves for two weeks. <laughs> it, raising and, kids uh, in the 1880s is so much easier. As a father, <laughs> I remember watching this as a, as a kid being like, that's cool. As a father, I'm like, you're walking away from your son and daughter for two weeks. What? And it's, yeah, well, different time in 1880. I was thinking about this also. <laughs> Those kids were born and raised doing chores. And so, yeah, they would have been. Our okay. kids yeah. aren't. So, wow. Not until they're like seven or eight and they can put their clothes in the washing machine. Yeah. It's that. After several bumbling and unsuccessful attempts to mount his horse, where he is clearly being punished, he says to his kids for how he treated animals in his previous life, he does successfully mount her and rides on to <laughs> Ned's. <laughs> See what I did there? As soon as he gets there, uh, Sally Two Trees, apparently recognizing that whatever money has in mind cannot end well, glares at him without speaking the entire time he is there. If looks could kill not only money and Ned, but the entire movie audience would be dead by the end of this scene. I just assumed she didn't know English. Yeah. But as it is, the two men ride off in pursuit of the kid. Eventually, they catch up with him and soon discern that he is severely nearsighted and can't see a target from more than 50 yards away. <laughs> that's that, that's a reveal I wish would have happened later on in the movie, though. Oh, really? I really do, because I think it would have been a great twist is that they get all the way there. They put put him in a spot to like do some sniper and he can't work, do the and he can't do it. Instead, they do, yes, instead they do it with Nail, or Ned. Ned ends up being the one that can't take the yeah. shot. The first to arrive in, biz, in Big Whiskey in pursuit of the reward is a gray-haired Englishman known as English Bob, played Dumbledore. by Dumbledore himself, Richard <laughs> yeah. Harris. Uh, sorry, um... Michael Gambon, but it'll always be Richard Harris. Uh, we Wait, first which one was first. Was it Gambon or Harris? Harris was first. And okay, then Harris died, and so they got Gambon. Okay. But Gambon was good, to be fair. We first meet him traveling on a train with his biographer named Beauchamp, played by Saul Rubinick. President Garfield has just been shot, which of course occurred in 1881, meaning that some months have passed since the original attack on Delilah. And Bob is lecturing his fellow passengers on the benefits of monarchy over democracy. Despite the Russian Tsar also being assassinated earlier that same year, <laughs> he and Beauchamp arrive in Big Whiskey, where Little Bill catches him concealing a gun. Little Bill brutally beats and kicks Bob until he is nearly unconscious, then throws both him and Beauchamp in jail. Okay. That entire scene clearly illustrates that uh, Little Bill and English Bob know each other and they have a history. I was going to say. Little Bill shows up there just to get the guns. English Bob tells him, I have no guns. And lies to him. And lies. Little Bill, again, is doing his fucking job. Because he was lied to. Don't lie to... And lesson, kids, anybody, don't lie to the police. And if you have Gene a, Hackman. And if you have a history of being someone who is murderous, then this is going to happen to you. 
You can't sit there going, well, I really feel bad for English Bob. Fuck you. It, you got somebody who's violent out there who's pretending like they don't have guns? No. Teach him a lesson a little bit. Kick him around the street. Let him know who's boss and that you're in America. And the sad I thing, didn't feel bad for English Bob. I didn't either. The United sad States. thing is, is at the beginning of that conversation, they clearly know each other. Yes. Yeah. So if they clearly know each other and then you blatantly lie to little, like to Gene Hackman, English Bob's a fucking idiot. Yeah. Or the duck. Uh, the, the duck of The duck. <laughs> At the jail, Little Bill debunks many of the stories Bob has told Beauchamp about his exploits. Soon, Beauchamp is out of his cell and working as Little Bill's biographer rather than Bob's. Little Bill finally puts Bob on a train out of town after bending his favorite <laughs> pistol into a U. Which, how do you think he did that? Went to a blacksmith shop. Blacksmith. Yeah, yeah said, you hey, would just melt you, this into a Yeah, a U. and then they probably just hammered it around the horn. Um, Money and his companions see the train carrying English Bob away as they ride into town. A torrential downpour begins, and by the time Money reach Money the Money Party reaches town, Money is sick with fever, and they've missed the sign that says "Town Ordinance: Turn in your guns." Arriving at the saloon called Greeley's, 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 yeah. Uh, Ned and the kid go upstairs to engage in the services of the prostitutes as an advance for killing uh, Dave and Mike. But money doesn't do that sort of thing anymore and remains downstairs shivering with fever. Little Bill sizes money up as an out-of-towner after the reward money and beats and kicks him in a similar way to what he did to English Bob. He has him thrown out into the street and sends his deputies upstairs after Ned and the kid. Ned and the kid escape through a window, manage to get money onto his horse, and ride out of town, where Ned nurses money back to health over the course of three days with the help of the prostitutes. So, he, he, so Lil Bill's doing his job again. Well, yeah. the, But the difference in this scene is that he's not lied to. He asks him to get no, his guns. No, he and, is. He is no, he says, does say, I don't have a gun. No, he doesn't. He says, I'm not any trouble. He no. says, I'm not any, he's like, I, because I was waiting for him to be like, I don't have a gun. But he says, he said, I'm no trouble. He said, I'm just dying here at this chair. He says, I'm not any trouble. He says, I need you to give you a gun. He's like, I promise you, I'm not any trouble. He's like, do your boys I upstairs have any guns? He says, they're not trouble either. No, he does say no. It may not have been, he may not, you're right. He may be saying, I'm not any trouble. But at one point he does say no. Meaning, no, they don't have guns. Are you oh. armed? He, he, is what he says. No, and he says no. Yes, I was okay. gonna say I'm. He does lie to to little Bill. Okay, I do I think he that lies. Then. Yeah. Um, but by the time money has regained his health, the rain has stopped, but there is snow on the ground. In the next scene, the snow is gone, meaning some time has passed, or some time has elapsed as money's partners have scouted out their targets. In the next scene, we see Davy falls over. Or sorry, in the next scene, we see Davy with a group of cowboys chasing a calf. A shot rings out in a, in a ravine, hitting Davy's horse, which falls over, breaking the man's leg and pinning him to the ground. Ned fired the shot, but now he can't bring himself to finish Davy, and the kid can't see that far, so money is left to take the shot. He fires several, several shots from a Spencer rifle, continually saying, I'm no good with it. Finally, he hits him, but he hits him in the stomach. As Davy lay, lies dying, he cries and complains of being thirsty. 
Finally, money calls out screaming to the Cowboys, give the man a drink. Give the man some water. I'm not going to shoot. Give the goddamn man some water. And promises to not shoot if they do so. They do it, and money is true to his word. I hate I hated this scene initially because you didn't want Davey to be the one that got shot. No, because he was the kid you sympathized right. with. Right, but this scene was so necessary to make you realize that, like... Money I is mean, a bad dude. Yeah, one, money's a bad dude, but two, I mean, they do things that they don't want to do. And, like, it kind of gives you a painting of, like, the different situations that they've been in in the past. It makes it real for everyone else that assassins don't... Some of, some of them do. Like, they don't want to do these things, but there's something in their minds, like, it's for the money. And and money will say later exactly why he does it. And I and I looked at the scene and I said, Ned doesn't have it in him anymore to do this. No, clearly not. It. But Clint Eastwood's character is still digging deep into recesses that Ned doesn't have. And he didn't want to go to. And he's probably able to do them because his wife died. Had his wife not died, I wonder if he would be able to tap into those recesses. Yeah. Ned has had enough of killing and leaves his companions to return home. But unfortunately, he is captured by the boys that follow uh, Davy and Mike. And we see him being interrogated by Little Bill. Men are also assigned to protect Mike. Money and the kid wait outside the house where Mike and his guards are holed up. When Mike comes out to use the outhouse, the kid waits until he is finished shitting and shoots him in the chest. But the kid can't deal with the fact that he has killed a man. He has boasted repeatedly of having killed five men, but now admits with money that this was his first. And he resolves never to kill again, telling money, I'm not like you. Money has him drink some whiskey, but it doesn't help. One of the prostitutes brings the reward money and informs them that Ned has been killed. After revealing Money's identity, Money sends the kid home with the reward money, telling him to leave his and Ned's share with his ki- with his children and take the rest and use it to buy some good spectacles. <laughs> he then rides toward town, drinking whiskey from a bottle as he does. Outside the saloon, he sees Ned's body upright in an open casket with a sign saying, this is what happens to assassins in this town. Money and well, so, I was gonna say anything before I go into like the ending scene. So far, <clears throat> I like everything Lil Bill's been doing. He's Real, a, he's was an he, antagonist. Was he justified though. in doing the torture? No, every uh, I, I, it is the torture when he goes too far. Um, I think that's the turn that we see a sadistic moment. If it's not that, it's the psychological moment in the, in the jail cell beforehand where he's with English Bob and Beauchamp. And tortures Beauchamp and English Bob and to possibly take... Yeah, yeah. he's clearly a mind f- Oh, he's a total well, mind f- right. he's also, We also know he's a former outlaw and a sheriff. Yeah. Right. But at the same time, he also, in the scene where... And I'm, gonna, I'm going back to look at... Try to find what the dialogue was between the two in the bar initially when he, asked, when he says, I'm not in any trouble. But <laughs> he, like, antagonizes him. He's like... He's a, instead of just like saying, you know, do you have a gun? No, we need it. Whatever. He says, well, what if I called you like a no good son of a bitch? All yeah. this stuff. He's like, would you shoot me then? He's like, no, I'm, I'm just sitting here at this table dying. He's like, well, what if I said this to you? And like, I mean, he, he pushes him and yep. pushes him. And at that point, you see that he almost enjoys getting to fight these people and he enjoys getting to hit them. And he en- he's sadistic. Right. But also, you'll notice whenever he's called in for these issues, it's always a good night. Yeah, <laughs> like, and he's always does trying he to ever sleep. He's also always <laughs> trying to build his really sh- 
the house. <laughs> no straight angles. No straight angles. <laughs> Holes in the roof. <laughs> when he's doing the interview with Beauchamp, and the house has got pots everywhere filling with water. <laughs> and he goes, you should probably fire your carpenter. The look that Bill gives Beauchamp uh, is daggers. At any moment, you're wondering, like, this guy's going to kill me. But right now, honestly, of all the people in this movie that I think is the bad guys, it's the prostitutes. Because they started the whole they're thing. They're the reason for it. Yeah, they're the reason for the whole thing. Don't laugh at penises and then don't ask for people to be dead. <laughs> Anywho. <laughs> Murphy's Law. Wow. <laughs> this took a turn. I mean, how many penises has she seen? Why'd she have to laugh at that one? Maybe it was a micro penis, like a scary movie. And that guy, the guy with the micro penis, is in he this movie. In <laughs> He's the one that takes the canteen to uh, what's his face, Davy. Oh, that's true. Yeah. All right. See, so the pivotal, Full circle, the pivotal scene, <laughs> the, the scene that makes this movie great. Money enters the saloon where most of the townsmen have gathered. He asks. Who owns this establishment? And this is the moment when you look and you're like, that's fucking Clint Eastwood. Yeah. That's Clint Eastwood from Hang Him High. That's Clint Eastwood from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Holy fuck, his eyes are open. The hat's up. He is going to fuck some people up. He's and, talking through his teeth. And I just, like, I get goosebumps every time I see that scene. It's so good. When Skinny identifies himself, Money tells the men near him to move away. They do, and he <laughs> blows them away with a shotgun. Little Bill calls him a coward for shooting an un unarmed man, but Money squints and replies, he should have armed himself if he's Great going to line. decorate his saloon with my friend. He then tells those near Little Bill to move away. He shoots Little Bill after Little Bill says, as soon as he fires, everybody in this room shoot at him. The shotgun misfires. He throws it at Little Bill, draws his pistol, shoots Little Bill in the stomach, and it, while this is happening, everyone else in the room is drawing their guns. Shoots Little Bill in the, in the stomach, then shoots five other men attempting to draw their guns on him. Some of them get shot, shots off at money, but they all miss. He then tells everyone who doesn't want to be killed to leave the bar. And all who are able to leave do so. He goes to the bar, helps himself to more whiskey. Beauchamp was not able to leave because of a dead body lying on top of him. Shrugs it off. Money has him give him a Spencer rifle lying nearby. While talking to Beauchamp, he loads it. Beauchamp tries to engage him in conversation about gunfighting. Money's responses frighten him into leaving as well. Little Bill turns out to still be alive, but, mo but Money hears him cock his pistol and steps on his hand before he can get a shot off. I love the part where he's like, Beauchamp stands up and he goes, I, I don't, I'm unarmed. He goes, pick up that shotgun. Yeah. And you're like, oh, and oh shit. <laughs> it, it's a drawback to the, to, the, uh, prison, or to the jail scene. Yeah. As Money aims his rifle at Little Bill, the latter complains that he doesn't deserve this. Money, reply, or Money replies, deserves, has nothing to do with it. Little Bill then says, I'll see you in hell, William Money. Williams, or Money simply replies, yeah, and shoots him in the head. As he walks to the saloon door, one of the men he shots previously moans in pain, and he shoots him again, seemingly in the penis. 
<laughs> At the door, he announces that he is coming out, that he will kill anyone he sees, and if anyone shoots at him, he will kill not only the shooter, but his wife and all of his friends, and he will burn his house down. He walks to his horse, and no one shoots. He mounts his horse, and as he rides past Ned's body, he says, quietly. In these movies, you always think them shouting, but he says it quietly. And in a torrential downpour, says, if they don't bury Ned right, or if they harm the prostitutes in any way, he will come back and kill every man in the town. As the closing credits roll, we learn that Money subsequently moved with his children to San Francisco, where he, quote, prospered in dry goods. <laughs> that's like that's the end of the movie going. And then he worked at Walmart the rest of his days. Now, we didn't yeah. we didn't touch on this, <laughs> but but the other significant part of the closing is the woman whose daughter married money came from like a good home, was pretty wealthy, and she eventually comes upon her daughter's grave, but money, money has clearly moved on with his kids to San Francisco. And one of the quotes says, this woman never really understands why her mother, why her only daughter marries a horrible person like money. And it's the un- and we don't know it's, either. It's another unforgiven moment. This woman cannot forgive money for what he did to her daughter. Money cannot be forgiven for any of the shit that he does. And we get the title. W- guys, what did you think after watching this film? Joel. I focused, be, having to do this for the podcast, I was trying to focus really hard on what I wanted to rate it. Um, but I enjoyed it. This is my first full-length Clint, Clint Eastwood movie. I liked Eastwood in it. Um, he's kind of the actor that looks like he would hate actors because he doesn't understand acting because why would you act and not just be a real person? But he is an actor and a really guy's guy actor that acts because I think it takes one more acting a job away from the Nancy actors. <laughs> All right. like, I was sitting the whole movie. I was like, this is not... Like, if I were to talk to Clint Eastwood, be like, hey, what do you think about actors? He's like, they're just a bunch of pretenders. <laughs> bunch of fake, phony Yeah, he Nancy's. talks how he acts. And I'm like, but you're an, an actor. actor. <laughs> But, and you're a good actor, but nothing about his personality makes me think that he would even tolerate actors. Yeah, touche. Joe? Well, I'm conflicted. Uh, it's not a movie I'd want to watch again, even though I've seen it three times now in a month and a half. Uh, <laughs> because I'm not a traditional Western fan. I just, I'm not. And it's an amazing, here's the thing, it's an amazing movie nonetheless. I can sit there and, like last night when we were deciding what to do, I found out that you hadn't seen it this week yet, JC, yeah. and I found I that you been... hadn't seen it ever, and I was like, okay, well, I will do it again, because originally it was, oh, okay, you're going to watch it, I'm going to chill out at home, and then I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll watch it again, why not? There's points in this movie where I'm like, I can latch onto those. Uh, from a personal preference, it's okay, but from a film appreciation standpoint, this is awesome. It really is. Yeah. An awesome film. So, not my cup of tea, but I understand how good it is. After watching it last night, for me, this is my whiplash. You guys love whiplash. There are parts in it that you don't agree with, but you look at it as the A that it is, and I just simply couldn't get behind it because it made me feel uncomfortable. Even though this movie, it makes you, at the end, feel uncomfortable? But see, that's the, and that's where it's weird. I don't. Yeah, I didn't. I watched I this it. movie, and I don't get uncomfortable. Whiplash made me feel uncomfortable. This doesn't, and it's worse. It is clearly a worse movie. I can't say that. 
But no, worse than that, the actions Murdering. are worse. It's actual oh, murder. Okay, okay. That's what that's Regards what I meant to was the worse. law. Yeah. Okay, like gotcha. <laughs> the actions, like killing, is worse than just picking on a kid and mocking him for drumming. I understand. Um, but what I love about this movie is at the end of Whiplash, you don't know who wins, and you're sort of left like they both got what they wanted. Exactly, they both won. At the end of Unforgiven, did anybody really get what they want? And which did, did did the 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 horse got what they wanted? The, did the, they? The because the their boss is dead. Yeah, they're. I mean, Who's so, paying rent? So everybody, everything is so up in the air that the that bad no, guys got it, the good guys didn't. Yeah, and so it, it's it's clearly a, a movie where the bad guys win, and you're supposed to feel conflicted about the bad guys winning, and I get that, and so I love it for everything, but I also get that people that don't appreciate westerns and people that don't appreciate. Not having closure. And I'm the epitome of that. I've said how many times on this podcast that I don't like movies without happy endings. I've said that so many times, and yet I am a hypocrite or a conflict of interest or whatever it is because I love this movie, and it doesn't have a happy ending. It's not. Can I add an addendum to what you just said about your opinion there? And that is, I want you to add to the end of those comments when you say you don't like movies that have happy. You don't like those specific movies that don't give you, because they've invested you so much, you wish there was a happy ending. Yes, that is. (laughs) Because I don't think, I I think you've kind of put yourself in a corner with some of these things, and you're not a hypocrite. I think it's just the movies that you've watched where it's not a happy ending. You were so invested, and they They pulled the rug out from you. And that was the director's choice to do that, to make you feel something that was unresolved and go, oh, shit. Damn, I guess life doesn't always work out with rainbows and cupcakes. But what Unforgiven does differently is at the beginning, you're like, oh, is this going to get resolved? I don't think this is going to get resolved. And you literally go through the whole movie wondering, is this going to get resolved? And no, it doesn't. Well, it does, because the original conflict is with the prostitutes and Little Bill. Oh, uh, you're right. That does. I guess, and maybe because I've seen it so many times, I'm hyper-focusing, but it's that conflict within Clint Eastwood, within yeah. William Money himself. When you first see William Money, it's like, who is this man? Is yeah. he a good guy or is he a bad guy? And that never gets resolved. Mm-hmm. But it, I don't think it was supposed to. I think you realize from the beginning, oh, I'm going to watch this movie and... He's a bad guy, but at the end, he's going to be a good guy. That's the that's the Western trope. But at the end, you're like, he's not a good guy. No. So it's unresolved. And I think that's what makes it great, that it's unresolved. Well, let's play a game called Did the Awards Get It Right? All right. Uh, Golden Globes. We're at the Golden Globes, which is the popularity contest. <laughs> uh, best director, Clint Eastwood wins for Unforgiven. But he was going up against Robert Altman for The Player, James Ivory for Howard's End, Robert Redford for A River Runs Through It, and Rob Reiner for A Few Good Men. I was going to say, those last two, that's some impressive competition. Okay. Okay. Does it get it right? I'll I'll be honest. I kind of wonder if Rob Reiner should have got it for A Few Good Men. That's my opinion. because I think Rob Reiner should have got it. But I don't know if it's only because A Few Good Men is more rewatchable. It is rewatchable, and A Few Good Men is going to reach a much larger audience than Unforgiven Will simply because it's a Western. Yeah. Uh, best film? Best film, drama, A Scent of a Woman, with, with Al Pacino one. Uh, the Crying Game was up there, A Few Good Men, Howard's End, and Unforgiven was up there, but Scent of a Woman won as best film in a drama. I don't know. Again, it, it was a, clearly a good year for yeah, movies. Yeah, it was a very good year. <laughs> 
I've I've I, never Joel, seen the scent of a woman. I'm not gonna be able to provide any input because the only movie other than Unforgiven that I've seen at the bottom is Aladdin. <laughs> uh, best Sorry, screenplay, guys. you know, Scent of a Woman, woman wins again, you know, but Unforgiven was on the nomination list. It's a good screenplay. <gasps> what? Best supporting actor yes. went to Hackman over Nicholson. Gene Hack. Well, it, let's be clear here. Gene Hackman probably, if he wasn't in that movie, a lot of people may have tuned out even more. That's true. 100%. And Hackman's in the movie way more than Nicholson. Nicholson has one great scene in A Few Good Men. Yeah. But he's, okay, I, I take it back. But, but that one scene is so great that you just think, wow, but no, you're right. It did. They got it right. It went to Hackman. But this is interesting because Al Pacino was up for best actor and best supporting actor for two different movies. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah, you'll see that in the Oscars later on. Uh, Academy Awards. Now we're in the Academy Awards, and Best Picture goes to Unforgiven. They say, yes, here, you get it. Uh, same four up there, Crying Game, Few Good Men, Howard's End, Son of a Woman. I think if you give... I, normally what they would do today, they would give A Few Good Men the Golden Globe, yeah. and then they would give Unforgiven the Oscar. Yeah. And I, Would you agree with that? That's probably what they would do? In 2017, yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. Um... Best director, they give it to Eastwood over Neil Jordan for The Crying Game, James Ivor for Howard's End, Robert Altman, and Martin Brest, <laughs> Brest for Son of a Woman. Nice. Uh, some have said that this award was given to Eastwood as almost like giving it to Leo for Revenant, really? like for all the stuff you've done in the past, because this was the final Western he's ever done. Yeah, I also wonder, like, he won for this one, but not, yeah. Yeah, I also could see that being because Leo shouldn't have won for Revenant, and uh, what, when you look at uh, now, but I do love Unforgiven, so I'm okay with it. Best actor went to Al Pacino uh, for Scent. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. was up for Chaplin, which he was awesome in. Uh, Clint Eastwood for Un Unforgiven, Stephen Ray for The Crying Game, and Denzel Washington for Malcolm X. That's pretty impressive. Wow. group right there. Yeah, I, I'm I'm still wholly in the camp that Washington should have won for Malcolm X. He was phenomenal in that. Like the fact that he didn't, th that's w whitewashing. Exactly. Like I'm I'm going to always say that that was that race was involved in that one. But I also think that if if Washington had won, okay. Pacino winning, okay. Eastwood winning, okay. okay. I, I can't complain about what I'm seeing here no, because. You can't. Outside of Stephen Ray and The Crying Game, I, I, I've seen all these other ones, and they, and they all were all could really have won. good. Yeah. It was uh, just a good year. Hackman picks it up with the Academy Award also with a supporting actor. Is that his only Academy Award? I think it is. Fact check. Oh, there we go. Uh, winning over Jack, winning over Al Pacino for Glengarry Glen Ross, uh, David Pamer for Mr. Saturday Night, and Jay Davidson for The Crying Game. Uh, best original screenplay, they had to give it to The Crying Game. No one had ever seen anything like that before. Yeah. He also, uh, Gene Hackman, won one Best Supporting Actor for Unforgiven and Best Actor for The French Connection. Ah. And surprisingly, nothing for The Replacements. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, Joel. It's okay. Uh, for best, what it is. best Sound, Last of the Mohicans won. Aladdin was up. A Few Good Men was up. Under Siege with Steven Seagal was up. And Unforgiven. I agree with Last of the Mohicans. Yeah, Last of the Mohicans should have won. Um, I'm surprised that wasn't up for more on the list. Well, Mohicans. Unforgiven was up for a lot of, like, to maybe go through these, because... It I was up know. for nine Academy Awards. Yeah, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, and then it won for Best Film Editing. Yeah. Like, that's impressive. And, yeah, won for Best Film Editing over the Basic Instinct, which I'm really surprised at. Uh, the Crying Game, A Few Good Minutes, and The Player. Basic Instinct is a fine film. Yeah. I don't know if I put it as best film editing, yeah. unless they're just going, the way they edited her uncrossing her legs was 
awesome. <laughs> <laughs> we have to plug this up there. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Well, what worked well for you in this movie? What were your favorite parts? Joel. Um, my favorite parts from... All right, so the camera work at the end of the movie is great. I like the way they kind of subtly communicate him going back and kind of processing everything he's going through with the different losses and kind of reflecting back on his wife. And then when he begins drinking again, subtly. Um, and then my, I love the, where you just have the point of view where he's on the horse in the rain and the bottle just hits the ground to show yep. that he finished that bottle that he took from the kid earlier. Um, I don't remember him communicating saying, I don't remember much of what I did. I was always drunk. So showing that he's getting drunk because he knows he's about to do something big. But mostly my favorite part was any scene with Gene Hackman and his house falling apart while he tries to build it. <laughs> that was the perfect he that was what um crap. Django director. Django Unchained? Yeah, but Quentin, uh, Quentin Tarantino. Tarantino. That was what Tarantino does so well. Only Tarantino's is a much more like inflated version of it. Just providing that comic relief when stuff gets very serious. I mean the movie was I mean, it was serious. It's, a serious. it's not a fun movie. But, it's not a happy movie. I mean, how perfect was it when they're like walking up to the house and all of a sudden just wood falls from it? He's like, oh, hey, guys, how's it going? Yeah. He's this very serious person in the bar beating the mess out of people and antagonizing, but he cannot build his house. And he's got pots all over the living room with water dripping into it, and none of it seems to phase him. He's just so happy <laughs> that he's built not only the roof, but heck, I built almost the whole thing myself. <laughs> <laughs> and you just see it fall apart every scene you're in. Joe? Uh, I, I put the star power. Gene Hackman, this movie does, I believe this movie does not work without him in it. I agree. Yeah. Uh, and I know that people will say, no, no, Clint's the driver. I don't think so. I think Gene Hackman. Clint's gives, not in that many scenes. Gene Hackman gives you that different tone every time he's on it. Otherwise, if this movie could uh, feel like a slog without him in it, you need yeah. The, yeah. the difference in attitude. Uh, English Bob, Beauchamp, and Little Bill at the jail cell, which is the first time I get the feeling of, okay, this guy's a little messed up in the head. Uh, the final scene in the bar, uh, it, was, it, it almost felt superhero-ish because you have five or six people with their guns pointed at them and none of them can hit them. Uh, but I kind of like that because you've seen the evolution from him being someone who can't hit anything through, at the beginning to someone who's hitting everything at the end. But to touch on that, there's also that scene where um, Little Bill is talking to Beauchamp and he's like, it's not always the fast straw. It's the guy that's the most calm. And like, I always remember that scene in the jail of when he's talking about him. He's like, I can be fast, but then I can only hit you if you're this far away. But if you're fast, you'll probably miss. And we see all of those guys mm -hmm. drawing their guns so fast and they all miss him. And Clint Eastwood is literally just going... And it oh the camera does it slowly. It does shot, 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 and he's just moving so slow it feels. And it's essentially proving what Hackman said to Beauchamp earlier in the movie. Yeah, I was. I am not a big gun guy, and I shot my first gun in the past year. And when I left, I was like, you know what? Every movie I've ever made fun of for terrible shots and missing everything. I understand they are quote trained. Their characters are trained. It's hard to hit targets, and I was calm, and I was taking my time, and the target was only 15 feet away or so. It's harder than it looks to hit a, a target, target yeah. let alone one that's like going up and down side to side. Yeah. Uh, final thing, uh, Morgan Freeman and Eastwood's rapport. If they were on the screen together, 
it was great. And because you, it made you want to go back and see what their story was before this point. You need a prequel. I would have liked one. I, I, think, it would, I, I think that that would have fleshed out their relationship, but they did a very good job of trying to make up for the lost town that they didn't have. So I like that. Uh, JC, how about you? Things that you liked? Everything. I think you said it best last week with Whiplash. Like, there's nothing in this movie you would change. Everything works, and everything is what it needs to be. Uh, a big complaint we talked about literally watching it, uh, Joe made the joke of, you got to you gotta work like build up your body to watch a Western. Because there's literally times when you're just watching mountains, mountains and them moving. But I'm okay with that. And I not with other movies. There are times where I'm like, okay, the pacing is too slow. We got to pick it up. So, but with Westerns, for me, I feel like you need that slow pacing because that's what it would have been. We, we live in a society now where you go from point A to point B so fast, and they're riding horses. It takes two weeks to get from Wyoming to Kansas and all of these places. Mm-hmm. Um, the camera angles, the, the long stairs that tell you you've worked at your job for 12 years <laughs> too long. Um, all of it is just it's great. I, there's not a thing I would change. There's not. Uh, what didn't work for you guys in this movie? I hated the Schofield kid uh, <laughs> until the very end. There were, and I was telling JC after we watched it last night, the thing is I know this kid. Like I have to, and growing up in East Tennessee, um, there's a very wide range of people. There are people that were, that are given a lot at an early age, and there are people that have nothing at an early age. And there's a different set of reality of what certain people think are real and what they're able to accomplish and what they're able to do. And more so, like, what it takes to get there. Some people, it's like, you know, it's East, it's Eastern Tennessee mountain high schools. And, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, play football. Up, yeah, got a team, like, team of 40. Best one on my team. I'm going to go play at UT. I'm like, no, you're not. You're actually not. You're yeah. you're going to just try to get into college. You'll be in JUCO. Yeah. Like, if, <laughs> but they won't. That's the thing. They are not going to even start on their uh, BFE school. They're not, but in their brains, they legitimately think that they are going to play at a high level, and you get sad because you're like, their their heart's going to get broken at some point, mm-hmm. or even the kids are like, I'm going to go into the Marines, I'm going to do this. I'm like, you can't run a mile, like you really can't. Yeah. And so it's these people that live in this false reality, and I've been with those kids. I've gone to like camps with these kids. I've been on teams with those kids, and just watching this kid, I was like, gosh, I'm so sick of this phony kid in this movie. But then at the end where he's like, no, he's like, I can't, I can't do this. This is not me. When you get to see that realization of like, you know, he can't, and he knows that he's not who he is. And I love that like transition. And we've talked about it in films before. I guess if you can make somebody hate you, then you're doing a good job at creating that character. Same thing with like the heels in wrestling. You know, yeah. Man, I hate this character. I hate Vicky Guerrero. But that's the point. You're supposed to have that person that you hate, that you boo every time their music plays. Um, there were a lot of Western stereotypes that I could have done without, but maybe that's just what Westerns need, where they just like palm the neck of the bottle and just turn liquor up and then wipe it with the back of their sleeve. I was like, oh, yeah, classic, classic Western. Um, but other than that, you know, maybe that's the stuff that Westerns need. Uh Going on your Schofield point, he reminded me of what would happen if Han Solo and Luke Skywalker had a baby with zero talent. (laughs) (laughs) He was as whiny as Luke was in A New Hope. 
and he had the bravado of Han Solo, but none but of the talent. No talent to use the force or throw or shoot a gun. Uh, <laughs> even though he could shoot a canteen from like four feet away. Uh, for me, you know, I and I swear I did not write this after you talked about what you liked about it. Yeah. Uh, it kind of dragged for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, we joked about all the characters staring into the distance in solo shots. <laughs> <laughs> the thousand yards stare. Yeah. And it, it, yeah, it, it, for me, because I, I don't, maybe it's my psychology, it chews up the momentum for me. I personally don't need constant backstory about a character to get their history. That's a writer's choice. Yeah. I get that. And from what I've gathered, a traditional Western staple. I read up on a lot of different other Westerns, and I read a lot of the same things, which is he goes over his story here. It's a lot of history to build these characters in those. And so I think when you make a Western in 1992, uh, and it's going to be probably one of the last ones made for a long time, you want to make sure that you have those staples in it to remind you to go back to look at those. Yeah. Uh, I, perhaps I just have to watch more Westerns to get that. Yeah. Uh, but other than that... I mean, a couple of acting choices here and there, but th- that, those are nitpicky things. And uh, I, I, as beautiful as the mountains are and all that, I, I get there in the middle of nowhere. I am curious, though, and maybe because you guys have seen more Westerns than I have. How are they getting around knowing what direction to go? Because at one point they're like, just go due west for two and a half days. That's a long way to go. How, how do you know specifically where the house is? You, landmarks, like, yeah, yeah. Landmarks. The I was mount- gonna say after after a while, tr- like going over a terrain and everything. Yeah, it's the same as roads today. We okay. just get used to landmarks. Okay, and so you would know certain areas and you know certain distances yeah. based on what you see. Where it. You are. Exactly. Okay, maybe it's because uh, I'm overly reliant on a GPS. I yeah, can't deal no with you. Yeah. No, like if you tell me, no, I get that. Make a right at the railroad tracks. I'm like, which ones? There's railroads everywhere. Right. <laughs> but, but, but I can the attest tracks. to that because because on our farm. I would tell people directions. I would tell people, like, you have to go down this path, make sure you turn a left, and there's a tree with this type of marking on it. You got to go. And people all the time were like, where are you talking about it? But to me, I was literally giving directions like, you turn on this street, and then it goes. Because I've just walked it so much. Yeah. I know exactly where I'm going, and if I would have talked to somebody else that did that a lot, they would know exactly where I'm going on the farm, and it just makes sense. Yeah, the only other things I have that don't work for me are story choices, which I'll get into with my uh, grade at the end. Uh, but uh, JC, what did not work for you in this? Now, you said everything worked. I know there's got to be something that didn't work for you. See, that's the thing. Like, I try to be nitpicky. I try yeah. to say, oh, well, I didn't like how wussy Clint Eastwood was in the fever scene with, with Little Bill. But he needed he, to be that he wussy. He had a fever. He was freezing. <laughs> but, and that's the thing. Like, every time I go to, oh, well, I didn't really like that. Like, why didn't he end up with the girl? Because they both like, like, because he couldn't. Because yeah. the story needed it. Like, every time I look at something that I want to say, no, they should have done no, they didn't do that because that's what the story needed. So I'm genuinely saying none of it didn't work because I think every choice that Clint Eastwood made was the right choice. So yeah. I, I, uh, yeah, okay. I, can't, I can't find anything nitpicky about it. That's okay. You were right. It's your whiplash. Yeah. Who is the audience for this movie, Joel? Uh, obviously, Western fans, I think, are going to enjoy this. And anyone that just wants to watch a movie that has a lot of stars in it. There were a yeah. lot of really good actors in this, and that's what made it much easier to just watch and stay focused with because, uh, you know, you have prior history in movies with all these guys, and so it's fun to see them all together. But even, I think, people beginning with Westerns that want something more serious than Django, but a little more exciting than just walking through saloon doors, 
I think this is good for just about anybody that is interested in watching a Western. I put Western movie fans and those who want to see what a modern-made Western looks like. And I'm going to add one more thing in there. If you want to introduce yourself to Western, start with this. Don't start with Tombstone. Tombstone is the most accessible yeah. to modern audiences. If you watch Tombstone, everything else will pale in comparison to you. Yeah. But if you start with this movie, it gives you a true sense of what the Western actually is. Yeah. I, I would say everyone. I don't think everybody's going to like it. I say everyone because I think everybody needs to see it once. And you guys made a good point. This is the movie you maybe introduce yourself to Westerns with. If you start with the John Waynes and all that stuff in the Jimmy Stewart movies, I personally think they're great movies, but modern audiences would probably look at them and be like, yeah, they're old movies. If you start with The Magnificent Sevens of Denzel Washington or even The Tombstones or even The Django Unchained, you're missing what made Westerns great. You, you, I, and I hate to sort of maybe pigeonhole this, but if you're going to be introduced to Westerns, you start with Clint Eastwood. I know most people and probably my father's generation would say you start with the Duke, you start with John Wayne. You mean the duck? The duck, exactly. <laughs> with me, no, you start with Clint Eastwood. My first Clint Eastwood was Hang Him High and The Outlaw Jersey Wales and all those. But I don't think those movies are as good as Unforgiven. And so you start with the best. And so I think everybody should see it at least once if you love movies. If you don't care about movies, if you don't care about Westerns, then no, you're not going to enjoy this movie. You won't. But in terms of who I think the audience is, I think everybody should see it at least once to understand what a good Western is, mm -hmm. maybe. Or to see the formula for what a good Western should be. All right, guys, here's the moment. Movie report card. Does it make it to the Pantheon? Joel. Hmm. It, you said something a second ago that was interesting. So are you saying that Unforgiven... Would you consider like Unforgiven being like the what the Dark Knight did for Batman yes. and completely changing the tone and presenting it in a different way? Yes, Yeah, I would. I, I think Unforgiven is the template for what... May, I don't think Tombstone is popular without Unforgiven. I don't. Yes, Tombstone is a great movie, but I don't think you would get the formula to make Tombstone without Unforgiven first. Yeah. Gosh, I don't... It's... I'm kind of I'm kind of on the same page as Joe in that it's really hard for me to rank a western when I don't have a lot to compare it to. When I was looking at all of the uh westerns that I've seen, I saw McClintock, but I don't think I've honestly seen that till I was like since I was 7 or 8, and that's a John Wayne like 1962. But other than that, I've seen Blazing Saddles, which is not really a western. I've seen Django, which is not really a western. And I watched I, I mean, think it is. Western. It is, but it's like a. It is a modern western. Yeah, like Hateful Eight is a western, right? And I but think it's got to be a. I think to fall into western, it's got to be a certain time period, and you have to have a lot of space, right? And yeah. it is a western, and I love Django. Django is one of my favorite movies. I just see it as like, oh, this is what would happen if a western got with an action movie and then was directed by Quentin Tarantino. Magnificent <laughs> Seven. Yeah. Um. And then, other than that, Dances with Wolves. And I watched that in school over probably like four weeks. I was going <laughs> to say, yeah. such a long I remember that, too. I remember having to watch that movie in school. I wonder yeah. what happened to that. Why do we not watch movies in school? Like and I really well, enjoyed it. You get you know, parental guidance now. That's true. God forbid yeah. you watch something that's, you know, Has historically in it. You know, decent. So. Yeah. Yeah, like, I don't, this is tough because in my mind, I'm like, I, I really enjoyed it. 
and therefore like this is better than what I thought a western would be. Therefore, I want to give it like I want to say like, oh, I loved how it ended, but I don't have anything to compare it to. So it's me being the you can't give a ten because what if someone does the exact same thing with their eyes closed? How about this? Does this western inspire you to watch other westerns? Uh, but again, you're nothing really inspires me to watch a western. Okay, except for the fact that I need to see Eastwood directed movie. Yeah, no, I mean I really enjoyed watching Clint Eastwood like I know it's I it's I'm just going back and forth between a minus and a because I want to go minus I'm like well I don't know what else is out there well, and no, now no, I no. want to hold s- up now you're getting you're getting you're getting almost too confusing to yourself that you happens. said a lot you that said a sometimes. long time ago that your grading scale is based on would I watch this again like see as I watch it so on that scale take oh. genre take all of that out of it on that scale would you watch? Because uh, I'm actually forgetting the exact wording you well, used, but you have mine was uh, C. I don't regret watching it. Okay. B is I will watch it again. A is I will buy it. And since we and added so, the buy bin stream, we changed no, I how get, we see it as film and how we see it as our own opinion. No, I get I get all that, but to help with his conflict because he seems conflicted, and I think what he's more conflicted about is leaving it out of the pantheon and things like that. I can feel the conflict within you. Let go of well, your hate. This is. <laughs> <laughs> it, like it's hard for me. Okay, I'm, I'm making it easy. I'm giving it an A. Well, here's what I'm going with. <laughs> no, I, you didn't. Just I wanna, make it easy. You I want to answer threw it all yeah. on him. You jackass. I want to answer JC's question. What if going on my scale? I don't think I would put any Western as an A because I don't have enough time to sit down. And be like, ooh, I'm going to watch this DVD. Click. Yeah. Except for maybe Django. That's the only one that I would watch. But I also consider that a variety of movies. If I'm looking at the Pantheon, I'm saying if there are five Western movies I think you need to watch, then I think you have to put um, Unforgiven in there. Well, then that also then answers y- your question. Then yeah. yes. I, if I'm saying does it deserve to be in the Pantheon of the top five Western movies, yeah, I think it is because this is a great movie. And this is one, if you're going to watch a Western in the Western genre, then you need to watch it. Okay. But if I were giving it in the A whatever scale – in my mind, I can't give. I'm not giving any Western an A because I don't know what to compare it to. Gotcha. That makes sense. So, if so, you're asking me, what do I want to put it in a Pantheon? Yes, because this is a movie I really enjoyed, I really liked. And you, if you're going to watch westerns, you need to watch this. So then, the movie report card in the western genre is uh, then it would be an A. Okay, I guess. That's I an mean, a. yeah. All right, Joe. Uh, and I, I want to kind of review something about the Pantheons here, and that is, you know, we talk about the top five, but if another movie gets that, we just can put that movie in the top five and knock one out, and then we or get or just say, you know what, it's good. It's not at this level. We all knock- give it an A still, so it's going to be an extra recess. It gets an extra recess. Check it out again. Yeah. Well, well, that's a little bit different wording because when we first did it, we said, okay, we this is another A. Then we look back at the five. Right. Is it good enough to knock one of those out? If it's not, then clearly our A grade needs to change well, someplace. Well, no, because the way I thought it was was we would nominate our five in there, and then as we found another one, if it knocked one out, it doesn't make it not an A. It just gives it an extra recess, which okay. is All like right. an honor. It's like in the Hall of Fame. Okay. You know, uh, it's just not the Rushmore. Joe, what's your movie grade, even though you already said it? <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, okay. I'm going to say it, because if you didn't hear it, I'm going to say it after reading this entire paragraph here, which is, I am not a Western fan. I've said that a couple times. However, it says a lot about a film that it can keep me intrigued throughout being someone who doesn't particularly relate to Westerns. 
the story doesn't take traditional turns. The bad guys are the good guys. The good guys are the bad guys. It tries to explain the unforgiven aspect of William Money. He can't forgive himself for his past deeds, and nobody can forgive him for them either. Yet the only other person who can really understand that is Ned, who leaves halfway through the movie. And a writing choice, I think, was meant to keep Eastwood's star high rather than have it be two former outlaws finally doing right by their lives. The cinematography is great, and the direction of the actors clearly got the best out of them. It's a great study in human nature and the psychology of how our bad decisions and choices never really go away. They just become something we have to live with. I have to wonder, though, if this wasn't Eastwood's final Western, would it have won all the awards it did? There's no way to know. Still, on celluloid, it is a great modern shot representation of a Western. I believe that it is pantheon worthy. I'm saying it's an A. And I also, as if you couldn't tell throughout, (laughs) it is going to be an A. So we officially have our first Western Western. in the Pantheon. It is Unforgiven. Yes. Yay. All right. There you go. JC, I just want want to give JC props right now. JC, you found a Western I liked. There you go. I try. Now next time (laughs) we'll do The Return to Snowy River. The f*** we will. (laughs) If this movie was released on Blu-ray, I need to stop touching chords. God damn it. If this movie was released on Blu-ray, would you buy it, bin it, stream it, borrow it, or forget about it, Joel? Um, I mean, if it was if it was in a bin for five-ish dollars, I'd buy it. Okay, Joe, I'd bin it. Going with my mentality that I only buy movies I want my future children to see to get a good, well-rounded appreciation of film, then to represent the westerns, I'd have to buy this as one of them. However, I'm not going to buy the super special edition Blu-ray. Check out the deleted scenes because chances are it's Clint Eastwood and it's, they're boring. <laughs> but it was on sale at Target for five ninety nine. I might pick it up. I was gonna say, I've already bought it, and it was a must buy for me. The problem is, is I bought it as a VHS. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, and, yesterday? No, no, no. Like, oh, okay. like when I moved to Nashville and all of that stuff. Like, I took all my stuff, and I had the Outlaw Josie Wales, Hang 'Em High, and all of those Clint Eastwoods, but they're all VHS. Yeah. And so when I recommended this movie, I'm like, oh, oh, I. Thought it was one of those. I thought I had the DVD. I thought I'd gotten it. Yeah. So it, it will be a must buy for me, but I'm not going to go out and pay full price. So I'll probably <laughs> bid it. <laughs> so it's a must buy, but I'm going to bid it. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of this show. And this next one that we're doing in about two weeks, we are going to be, I'm nominating the movie Hoosiers. Uh, this is another Gene Hackman movie. It's about basketball in a small town in Indiana. So uh, go check that out. We got about two weeks here before we go on to the next uh, to check to re- review that one and see whether or not it's going to make it into the Pantheon or not. But Hoosiers, H O O S I E R S, check it out. It's a fantastic basketball movie and sports movie in general. I believe that this in the sports genre is going to end up being in A in the long run. Well, that's all I got time for today, Movie Planeteers. You can email the Movie Planet using the address movieplanetpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to pass the word on to your friends about the show. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Overcast, Podbean, or Spotify, and help the show get on its feet with a four- or five-star review. Tweet with any questions, comments, theories, and I'll try to fit them into the show next time we're on the air. Send those tweets to at movieplanetpod and like us on Facebook and Instagram using the links in the show notes. Special thanks to Twisterium and Sound J Music for providing our intro music and our ending music. Thanks for listening, and happy movie watching.
You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.